good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. There are really three things that I want to walk us through this morning. The first is who we are not indebted to. The second is who we are indeed indebted to. And then I'll save the last point. I'll give it to you later. The reason I wanna do this is because as you approach Romans chapter eight, really verses 11 and 12, I want you to notice something. Because as you walk through this, it almost seems like Paul has taken a, a divergent road. I mean, if you read through, let's just read through 11 and 12 again and kind of see what I'm getting after. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then brothers, we are debtors. And you would almost assume that the next phrase there would be, so then brothers, we are debtors to God. That's the natural reading. It seems as though that would be the normal flow of his thinking, but instead he interjects this concept. And I, and I think quite importantly, he interjects this concept because he wants us to understand what we have been brought from. And also I think to indicate to us how then we are to live here and now, because the natural reading would certainly be we are debtors to the spirit. I mean, think about what the spirit of God has already done for us. And if we were to make our way all the way back through Romans eight, that which we've read so far, we would know that Christ has ultimately freed us from the condemnation of the law. God has sent his son so the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. And the spirit is actively giving life to our mortal bodies. We are indeed debtors, it seems. And the natural phrasing from there should be, you are debted to God the father, God the son, and God the spirit. But he takes this detour and this detour is in regard to the flesh. And I, and I think there's a, a reason to ask the question, why does Paul tell us that we are not debtors to the flesh? Because it doesn't read we are debtors to the spirit. Instead, this interjection is we are debtors not to the flesh, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So why does Paul then pause in the middle of all of this beauty to interject the fact that the flesh is still present and we are, by his grace, not debtors to it. Let's ask that. Let's consider a couple of things. The very first thing that I think Paul is asking this question to remind us of is that his desire is to remind us of what the flesh has provided for us. What has the flesh provided for you? Can I ask you just a simple question? If you make your way through Romans 8 and you consider the glorious salvation that he's provided, where is your flesh in the midst of all of that? Do you have anything present? I, I think if we were to say anything we can see that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and he condemned my sin in the flesh, but what has my flesh merited? What has my flesh done? Is there any reason for me to be indebted to it? As one incredibly wise commentator said, the only thing that, the, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. If you want to navigate and look at what the flesh has provided for you, what the flesh has given birth to in your life, we can say with great certainty, it has only provided sin. It has only provided the thing which made God's salvation so incredibly necessary. So you look at this and it's, why is Paul bringing this up? Because he wants us to understand that there's absolutely nothing that has come from the flesh to contribute to everything that he has just articulated and everything that he is about to articulate. The reason that Blake can read Romans 8 and talk about there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who has died, is not because the flesh has provided anything. It's because Christ has had our sin condemned in his flesh. 
He reminds us of the flesh in the midst of this. And it almost seems as this great interjection, but I'm so glad that it is present to remind me that I have done nothing in the midst of my salvation except look upon it and rejoice. We are debtors, but not to the flesh. He reminds us that there is absolutely nothing that we have provided, nothing that the flesh has brought to the table. And as we have said over and over again amidst this passage, the flesh only gives birth to flesh. But I don't think it's just because he wants to remind us of of the nothingness that the flesh brings. I also think it is because we must know how to interact with it now that we are in the spirit. How are you to interact with that flesh that is still present? Later on in Hebrews, Hebrews 12 reminds us that it clings so closely and that it entangles us. How are we to interact with such a thing? How are we to, now that we are in the spirit of God, the spirit has given us life, we still have the remnants of this old man, we still have this flesh, how are we to interact with it? How are we to understand it? And just to kind of give you three major things that I think uh, Paul deals with elsewhere, really in Galatians and in Romans later on as well. So the first is this, we must understand it's enmity and be at enmity with it. Just let me, let me read Galatians 5.17 to you. For the desire of the spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other. I want you to notice this language, opposed. The concept is diametrically opposed. There is no way for us to live in the spirit and live in the flesh simultaneously. There's no means for that. They are polar opposites. They are diametrically opposed. And so these two things are at odds with one another, but then it goes even further and it tells us that, this, that what the flesh is doing is aiming to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's Galatians 5, 17. I love that simple phrase, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And just as a side note here, can you consider the magnificence of the, of the spirit of God? Because what I once longed to do, what I once desired to do was everything according to the flesh. And now what I see in the midst of this battle between spirit and flesh is that the inner man, the desires of my heart are not disobedience, but obedience. My desire is to obey and to delight and to rejoice in Christ. But the flesh clings closely and it wages war against longing to keep me from doing what I want to do, what I desire to do. We must understand the enmity of the flesh. It has contributed nothing to our salvation And even to this very day, brothers and sisters, it adds nothing to it. There is nothing for you to add in your own labors, in your own workings to add to your salvation. He reminds us there's no debt to be paid to it. It has provided nothing for you. It has not clothed you. It has not cared for you. It has done nothing. It has cast you out an alien. You owe nothing to it. We are at enmity with it. And we must use this language. We must speak of it harshly and firmly. We wage war against this. We are not debtors to it. Secondly, we must know what its desire is for us. He continues on in Romans 8, 13 quite clearly. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. You know, you read through this and we've spoken quickly and over the past couple of months through Romans 7 and Romans 8, we've talked about the mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace and the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God and its ultimate end is tribulation and distress. Some people would take this verse and I think quite erroneously say that if you're in the spirit and then you live according to the flesh, you will die. Brothers and sisters, that's not a reality. What is actually it's saying is if you're living according to the flesh, you will die because you've never been indwelled by the spirit of God. It's an indication, it's indicative of your rebellion against God and your unrepentant and callous heart. And so what does he say? If you live according to the flesh, you will die because you must cast yourself on Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And the power of Christ to save starts here and now. It alters the man from his core. 
to where no longer does he want to live in the flesh. Instead, he longs for obedience and to delight in Christ. And so he tells us we must understand its enmity and be at enmity with it. We must know what its ultimate desire is for us, which is death. And I think most importantly, he's telling us how to war against it. I love what he says later on in Romans chapter 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, the positive there, and make no provision for the flesh. No provision. He essentially looks at us and says, do not nourish it. Do not give it food. Do not give it water. It's a war of attrition. Starve it out. Starve it out. Don't let it eat. Don't let it drink. And if we could just make a brief application, how easily and how quickly do we coddle and comfort sin? We think about it so lightly. You know, Paul says here, don't don't let it drink water. Don't let it have any nourishment within you. Make no provision for it whatsoever because in reality, it will kill you. It will destroy you. And so when he's telling us that we are not debtors to the flesh, it means that there is nothing owed to it except the sword. We offer it no substance. We offer it no food. The only thing that we owe our sin is a quick slash of a mighty sword. It is to be put to death as we will see here in a moment. But when we look at this, the reason this introduction is here is to remind us even amidst all the glory of being born again, of being indwelt by the spirit of God, that that enemy still needs to receive that sword. It still must be put to death. We still must wage war against it. If nothing else, but to honor our king, if nothing else, but to, to, to keep our own souls, to, to long for obedience, to delight in those things, to wage war against anything that would keep us from it. But I do think there is an important question because when we think about the concept of flesh, sometimes I think we think about it as really, really ugly. You look at the fleshly sins that the world often speaks of and you think, oh, that's heinous, that's wicked, that's hideous. Tell me, what did people think as they viewed the Pharisees? Did they think to themselves, oh, they are so ugly, so unkempt, they're dead men? No, brothers and sisters, that's not what they thought. Because in reality, there are two ways to live according to the flesh. The Apostle Paul's already examined this in chapters one and chapter two of Romans. He's pointed out to us that, that kind that we always think of, that licentiousness, that giving over to all types of disgust, dousing yourself in sexual immorality and drunkenness and all of these wicked things. And we look at those things and we say, oh, they are heinous, they are wicked, they are ugly. But do not be mistaken. Who did Jesus have the harshest words for? He had the harshest words for the Pharisees, but far too often we look at the life that's lived in the flesh and we think, oh, how lovely. But the flesh is still alive and well. We must take Jesus at his words when he calls them whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones inside. Because we must remember that it is, God does not look at the outer man, he looks at the inner. And the inner is the one that the spirit of God has come to renew. And certainly I think that we can give up this facade, this really lovely front that says, ah, oh, I am pretty, I love Christ, I submit to his rule and to his reign, all the while you white-knuckling it and rejecting the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're living according to the flesh. If you go back to Romans 2, what did the Jews do? They boasted in the law, they boasted in their circumcision, they boasted that they had the oracles of God. They did not boast in Christ. Righteousness, righteousness is lovely inside and out. Living according to the flesh most certainly can throw up a facade. But true righteousness, true submission to Christ renews the inner man. 
And so certainly we can say that living according to the flesh might, might appear as lovely and beautiful. We can call it whitewashed tombs that men might gasp at and consider their loveliness. But in the end, they will ultimately hold dead men's bones. And certainly we think of that licentiousness of living according to the flesh. These are the men that we walk by and we scoff at. I would never be one of those. I always think that this understanding of the flesh, thinking about it from the licentious aspect, the good old boys look at these things and they say, "Mm, I'm so much better. All the while, the true licentiousness lies not just in the outer workings of our hands, but in the inner workings of our hearts. And what do those things reveal about us? Thankfully, Paul, when he lists, he does not deal with only that which is exterior, but often deals and and perhaps even more so deals with what is internal. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. We look at all of those things and we say, well, I'm not in this list at all. I I mean, this list is fine. You can do with them what you want. Then you go a little bit further. And it says, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envies, drunkenness, orgies, all and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. When I think about living according to the flesh, the ones that stand out most to me are these, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, and envy. Why? Why? Because these are the ones that I see us so often overlooking. We will look at those who have sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry and we'll look at them and we will quickly, Lord willing, bring them the gospel, perhaps all the while having some bit of judgmentalness attached to it because we're a little bit better than they are. But when I look at these things, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, these are the misdeeds of the flesh. These are the things that are eternally offensive to the holy God. You envy one another. There's jealousy within us. We like rivalries. We invite drama and dissension. These things are at enmity with God. These things are, as it were, the misdeeds of the flesh and they are to be put to death. They are not to be coddled. And it's these very sins that we allow to come close to us, that we feed, that we nourish. What does Paul tell us to do? Give them the sword, put them to death. And dear saint, hear me, none of these are permissible for the people of God. We must not gloss over them. We must not look at them lightly. We must see sin, call it what it is. And sin, by the way, is our harshest term for anything and say, kill it, kill it. Why? Because we are not debtors to the flesh. We owe it nothing but the sword. And so he commands us in the midst of this. So then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. None of these things should be named among us. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, and praise God for this simple sentence, because you read through this and and I read Galatians 5, 19, and I see all of these things in my life in some capacity. I know that I still have the remnants of the old man. I know there's still sin in me. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if I have these things, am I living according to the flesh? Is there any freedom from all of this wickedness? And then bursting forth from Romans 8, 12, or Romans 8, 13, forgive me, by the spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Militant language, isn't it? Put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. Can I ask just a simple question? Why? Why must we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh? Why must we wage war against them? I wanna give you three reasons, starting from the worst reason to the best reason. First, because if you live by them, you will die. The very first one is personal preservation. Personal preservation. 
If you long to live and the very first response is I'm gonna put these things to death because I know their end result. I know that they are cancers that long to corrupt me into the grave. And so my response to them as I see sin present in my own life is to wage a holy war against them, to put them to death by the spirit because I don't want to die. And that means both physically and temporally. I want to be released and separated from all of this wickedness. I don't want its wicked presence on me any longer. I want to be free from it and I want life and life everlasting. And if we understand that from the biblical perspective, that means I don't want anything, any sin separating me from my God and King. I want life. But not only that, because they are at enmity with your new nature. Isn't it interesting that in each of these things, perhaps it is in various aspects, strife was near and dear to you. And then by the spirit of God, you came to life. And all of a sudden, strife is something that you want to get as far away from you as possible. I find it so intriguing that normally pet sins are the very first one in the midst of our conversion that God shows us how abhorrent it is. And we think, oh God, you've unmasked to me sin's deformity. And our immediate response is get this away. This is how radical the regeneration of the spirit is. The things that we once loved, now we think to ourselves, how far away from it can I get? How quickly can it be removed from me? And we pray, Lord, by the spirit, remove it from me. Cast it as far as the east is from the west. May there never be strife on my tongue any longer. Why? Because the new nature is so different. It's so distinct. It does not delight in evil, but it delights in well-doing. And so why do we put to death misdeeds of the flesh first? Because of personal preservation. Secondly, because we hate the thing that we once loved. And lastly, and I think most importantly, because they are offensive to your king. We coddle sin and we allow it to get close to us. And all the while, we do not have the transcendent view of the king of glory. The reason I think that we are so slow to put sin to death is because we do not see him as he is. We have a king, brothers and sisters. He reigns and he rules and he dictates to us what is good and right and holy and any rebellion against him is treason. When we see sin present, we must gladly with just a thrill in the soul put sin to death because we love our king because we long to obey him, to delight in him. It is our great joy to wage war against sin because we love our king. When we understand how Jesus speaks in the book of John, what does he tell us? What is it that causes us to obey his commandments? Is it because they've been revealed to you distinctly? No, it's because you love him. And if you love your king, brothers and sisters, it means that you wage a holy war against all things that are at enmity with him. You look forward to the day. You rejoice at the concept that every single one of his enemies will be made his footstool. When he goes forth conquering, you stand in the background applauding. And when you're underfoot, when your flesh is being put to death by the spirit, you should be clapping louder than anyone because praise be to God, he loves you enough to discipline you. Why do we put it to death? We put it to death because we long to live, because we have a new nature. And lastly, and most importantly, because we love our king. How then? How do we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh? Is it by the flesh? Have you ever tempted this? I can think of countless times in my own life where I have some sin that perhaps someone has perceived and my immediate response to that sin is, okay, well, now that someone has seen it, let me replace it with another sin. Therefore, that sin's dead. But essentially what's happening is all I'm doing is replacing one sin with another and I'm just multiplying the flesh within me in a more deceitful way. 
or what of the Jews, how oftentimes did they labor against various sins that would be made public? And they would say, oh, I'm not doing any of these things. They're longing to put to death the flesh by the flesh. You couldn't free yourself from the flesh by the flesh. I assure you, you will not be able to kill the flesh by the flesh. There is no means of laboring. There's no means of working to see something so vile and powerful put to death. But thankfully, we do not have to assume that it is by the flesh. Instead, we know with great certainty that it is by the Spirit. How are we to put to death the misdeeds of the body? By the Spirit. Now, what does that look like? I mean, I I hear this language and I rejoice in the concept that I can be free, that I can put to death the misdeeds of the flesh by the Spirit. But my immediate response is, okay, how am I supposed to actually walk in this? Galatians tells us again in Galatians 5, 18, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Isn't it interesting? Sometimes we think about the concept of putting to death the misdeeds of the flesh by this, like now all of a sudden, here's a list of things that I must do so that it will actually die. Like it's a chemo regimen. It's not. It's looking unto Jesus. What is the Spirit's primary operation, brothers and sisters? It's to communicate the Father and the Son to us. And in Him doing so, He gives us new delights, new desires, new joys. And in giving us those new joys, immediately our response is to neglect all of those former and lesser pleasures. How are we to respond? How are we to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh? Get a superior pleasure. Find something better, something more glorious, something that's more pleasing and lastingly so. How often do you eat of the works of the flesh and find yourself both hungry, thirsty, and unsatisfied on the back end? Tell me, saint, how frequently do you eat of the fruit of the Spirit and find yourself both satisfied and savoring the good work of God? You don't know how to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh by the Spirit? Delight in the things of the Spirit. Find yourself in the Scriptures. Pour yourself into prayer. Delight in Christ. Find in Him your joy. And everything else that comes your way will fade in the light of His glory. So often we stare at sin. The Spirit never causes you to stare at sin. The Spirit always causes you to look to Christ. When we wage war, we do not wage war looking at sin like a legalist. We wage war looking to Christ like a Christian. We look to him and in him we find our all in all. How do we wage war against the flesh? How do we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh? We delight in the spirit of God. We cast ourselves on him. And if I could make a simple application, you find yourself drinking often of the ordinary means of grace. You delight in the community, the people that love you and are glad to look at you and tell you to repent and to point you to the beauties of the gospel. You come to the table, you celebrate when you're able to dine there because you have no business being here. Only by his blood do you draw near. How do we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh? We live by the spirit. Now, it is perfectly reasonable then for us to say we are debtors. We're not debtors to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But Paul's purpose in introducing that phrasing in verse 12 is to tell you that you most certainly are a debtor. You are a debtor. And oh, what a happy debtor you should be. Can I give you just a couple of things? Because I'm convinced what Paul is actually working through is telling us our response to really verses one through four of Romans eight. We are debtors. How are we debtors? We are debtors first and foremost to God the Father for his sending of the Son. Can you consider such a great exchange for a moment? Why are we debtors to the Father? We're debtors to the Father, and we're not even going to eternity past at this point. You're debtors to the Father because in His infinite grace, He elected you unto salvation without you doing anything except sin and rebel against Him. 
Why are we debtors to the Father? We're debtors to the Father because in his infinite grace, he's elected us unto salvation. And then in his infinite grace, he sent his beloved son so that we could enjoy, that he could light up the world and do the glorious work of redemption. We're indebted to the Father. You look at all of what he has done. He played out every providential moment in history to bring about the cross so that there could be a people redeemed. It's the work of the Father. We're not only indebted to the Father, but we are also indebted to the Son for His work of redemption. You know, I know that a hobby horse on the incarnation, have you considered the indebtedness simple, simply because He condescended to dwell among us? You know, I can even, even without the work of redemption, I'm indebted to the fact that He would indwell time to live here, to be my high priest that sympathizes with my weakness. And then not only that, but to fulfill all righteousness for 33 years, perfect in every way, made like us in every way, yet without sin. Just that I'm indebted to. And then I see him hanging on the tree. I see him there high and lifted up. He calls it the glorification of the son. I look there and I think, what a terrible fate to be crucified, to be cursed. And then I stand here as one who is freed from the curse by his crucifixion. How am I indebted to the son? I can't even explain to you the level of debt And then I see him raised. And throughout all eternity, there he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. My name on his lips, his bride ever constantly defended. How am I indebted to the Son? It multiplies and multiplies and every moment of the day when I draw breath, it multiplies all the more. And we haven't even gotten to the Spirit We're endlessly indebted to the Father. We're endlessly indebted to the Son. And we are endlessly indebted to the Spirit of God. Why is it that you know, that you know, that you've seen? How is it that you were released from the flesh, that you had been removed from sin? It's no longer alive to you. You're dead to it. How is it that you see and behold Jesus? How is it that your mind is quickened? How is it that you're able to live a single moment of the day to the glory of God by the Spirit? It is only through his finished work, the application of Jesus's finished work by the spirit that we have any fellowship with the father. The reason that we say eternal life starts here and now is because the spirit of God indwells you. If he didn't indwell you, I could not offer you that glorious truth. But because he does, I can say with great certainty, we have life and life now. I am indebted to the Godhead. I'm indebted to each person of the glorious Trinity. We are debtors because we have been brought out of death and into life. And a simple way to say this is he owns us. He owns us. Turn to passages like 1 Corinthians 6. We're reminded, who are we? We are the temple of God. The reason that we exist The reason that we're here, the reason that we reserve and we preserve and that we wage war against sin is because we are reserved for our king. We are debtors. Now, if I could, I want to give you a couple of things, four in particular, that we should understand about our indebtedness. And the first is this. We must see our debt as unpayable due to its grandeur. Tell me, where do you start? Where do you start? How is it that you pay him back? I mean, even if you had eternity, which you will have, could you, in the light of the grandeur of his gifts, the grandeur of his work, the glory of everything that he has done, even begin to pay a debt? What would you offer? 
Because I'll confess to you, as I look at the grandeur of this, it is unfathomable that I could offer him anything, even to begin payment. Like I don't have a down payment. I got nothing to offer you. There's nothing, like the, 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 the sum is too large for me to even begin fathoming pay it. But then even further, not only do we need to see it's unpayable due to its grandeur, we must also see that it's unpayable due to our own finiteness. We really, because the reality is you don't have eternity. Eternity is eternity past and eternity future. You have eternity from the moment that you draw your first breath. But that is not sufficient. And perhaps it is that you think to yourself, oh, okay, well, if it's infinite, if, it's, if, if, if I need infinite life so that I can pay it back, perhaps it is that that's the reason that God gives us eternal life to dwell with him forever, that we can pay him back. Paul hard disagrees. Ephesians 2, 6 through 7. Why is it that we have been given eternal life? Why is all the work of God done? Ephesians 2, 6 through 7. And raised us up, speaking of sinners, with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Listen to this. Foolishness. I love the gospel because I can say things like that. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why is it that you've been granted eternity? It's not to pay him back. It's that he might lavish on you the immeasurable riches of his kindness. The primary reason that eternity is given to us is so that we might enjoy him forevermore. By the way, all the while increasing our indebtedness. You're gonna sit there for eternity. You're gonna sing his praises. And at the end of the first million years, you're gonna say, my goodness, how much more indebted to him am I now? I'm finite. I'm unable to pay back. And even if I was able to pay back, his kindness is so rich that there's nothing I can do in, in contrast anyway. And the third reason that we cannot pay him back is due to God's self-sufficiency. He needs nothing from you. He needs absolutely nothing from you. Romans 8, 33, just a little bit later. I'm sorry, Romans eleven thirty three. forgive me. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. Look at this. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Well, now I'm kind of confused because I'm indebted. He doesn't want a gift. I can't give him one anyway. So what, what is all of this labor laying out for us? Is it an indebtedness in the sense that I must do something to pay God back? Most certainly not. It cannot be that. I think what we must understand is that the indebtedness that we have is an indebtedness of gratitude. It is an indebtedness of awe and worship and delight and thrill and joy. How is it, brothers and sisters, that we pay, that we give something back to God that he might be repaid? There is nothing to offer what do we do then? We enjoy his good gift. We delight in that which he has offered. Parents, what greater joy do you have than when you hand a child a toy for Christmas and their faces light up with thrill and joy? So it is with our heavenly father. When he gives us the glorious gift of salvation, he says, see what I've done in eternity past. See the work of the son. See the work of regeneration. Delight. What's our debt? Our debt is gratitude. And our hearts should be set ablaze by it. We long, we delight, we rejoice in the work of the Father and the Son. And we gladly, gladly profess we are debtors. But we must also say that we are not debtors first and foremost. Let's turn our attention to verse 14. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Paul could have very easily left us as debtors in this passage. Very easily. Rightly so at that. But he continues his original train of thought. You're not debtors to the flesh. Put those things to death. They're wicked. They're at enmity of your king. Lage, wage a holy war against them. He reminds us who we are indebted to. That is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, our glorious God. And then he reminds us of who we actually are. The whole language laid out from Romans 8 has actually been trying to land us at this simple principle that we are not first and foremost debtors. We are first and foremost those who are led by the Spirit of God. What does that mean? I want to lay just a couple of things out here. These are verses that I love, especially in regard to the leading of the Spirit or how God leads us in day-to-day life. First of all, I want you to notice a passage in Hosea 11, 3 through 4. I'm a sucker for Hosea, especially this verse. See him first and foremost as our father leading. Notice what it says in verse 3. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws and I bent down to them and fed them. Do you know what the picture here is? The picture here is how early Israel would train their children to walk. They would place just a simple cord underneath their arms and they would hold it and guide them and lead them forward. Essentially what you have here is a wondrous picture of God as father. It's God wooing us and picking us up and drawing us to himself, teaching us how to walk. You see God being the father. So we see him as our father leading. What does it mean to be led by the spirit of God? I think simply we could say that it is seeing the father leading us by the spirit. But not only that, if we go a bit further in the scriptures to 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, we get to see him teaching us how to talk. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. There we have that simple statement of the spirit of God leading and working. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Notice this language. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. What is God doing as our father? He's teaching us. He's teaching us first and foremost in this particular passage, how to even speak, but not only speak, speak his language to say and to confess that which is true in this particular circumstance, that Jesus is the son of God. We see our father leading us. We are led by the spirit of God. I love Ephesians 5.18 because this, I think, deals with the affectionate nature of our father's leading. Ephesians 5.18 through 20, do not be drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He teaches us how to follow him as father. He teaches us how to speak the true confessions of the Christian faith. And then he teaches us to sing of them to rejoice in them, to delight in them, to find ourselves in the midst of a gathering of saints proclaiming glorious realities together. He teaches us to speak to one another in what is true and right and good. And then lastly, he teaches us to live. Galatians chapter 5, 22 through 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What is the Father doing? The Father, brothers and sisters, is being the Father. 
The Father is demonstrating his infinite, eternal, loving kindness to us by the deposit of the Spirit. He is teaching us. He's revealing to us his fatherhood. He's showing us that he is the one who taught us to walk. He's showing us that the reason that we ever say anything true and right and good is because he deposited the spirit of God in us and that spirit of God is most certainly leading us. The reason that we sing and sing loudly is because God has given our tongue utterance. The reason that we live, the reason that we long to see the fruit of the spirit produced in our lives is because we want to please our father. And he has, in his infinite grace, deposited the Spirit in us so that we might be able and willing. So what is the simple conclusion of this verse? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We are not in error, brothers and sisters, to call him Father. I think a simple way to say it in summary is all who are led by the Spirit of God are debtors, but we are debtors in the same way sons are. I owe my heavenly Father everything. I owe him my breath, my life, and all my fidelity. My very nature flows from him. He threw cords of love around me so as to lead me. He taught me to speak his language. He taught me to sing. He both gave me life and taught me to live it. It is an impossibility for me to pay back all I owe, but he has never once asked to settle our debt. Why has he never asked to settle our debt? Because though I am a debtor, I am first and foremost his child, and children are not debtors. They are heirs. Let's pray.